You were never out of the fight. You were created for a time such as this. And you are now preparing to be sent into battle. God is calling you to be his disciple, to be formed in virtue and holiness. He has appointed you as an ambassador of his kingdom. To go and represent him to his people. And he's enlisted you as a soldier of Christ. To be sent out to fight for the good in this world. You were not made to make excuses. time for you to take extreme ownership for your life, for all of your life. It's time to rise up and finally be the man or woman you were created to be. Follow God. Lead others. And never surrender. It is time to begin seeking excellence. What's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Nathan Crankfield. Welcome back to the Seeking Excellence Podcast. It is great to spend some time with you today. Uh, this is an episode that I've wanted to do for a while now. Um, I mentioned it, if you remember, man, probably a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, that I went on a retreat called Life-Giving Wounds here in Colorado in, I believe it was in October, maybe it was September, I can't even remember. Um, but it was really great. Uh, and the whole purpose of Life-Giving Wounds as a ministry is to minister and help facilitate healing for adult children of divorce. So this could be for children of divorce from, they were, you know, you, your parents got divorced when you were six months old to you were 35, right? So it's a wide range of ages, wide range of stories, but um, I'm going to talk about all that in a second, but first I just want to give a little bit on just kind of divorce in general, just to kind of set the tone. And then I want to talk about it almost more from like the social pillar and like the social aspect of it. And then I will get into um, some of the uh, like emotional, mental health, healing and things like that as well. And so let's take a look at this. <clears throat> I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 19. Verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he cured, he cured them there. Some Pharisees came to him, and to test him they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? He said to them, it was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity 
and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. So that, I think, is super interesting. So Emily and I read that this morning in some of our prayer time together. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. One thing that really stood out to both of us was just like, we were both kind of like, I don't think there's a social issue in today's world, right, that's kind of hot. And divorce isn't really even hot anymore. It's just like so commonly accepted. But as far as like any any social issues go... Can you think of another one that Jesus is more clear on? What's also really interesting in a much shorter way, in a small paragraph in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus also talks about divorce and about how a man who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery and things like that. But this one I feel like is really specific, and it's really interesting to me that in the exact wording coming from the Pharisees, they're actually asking our Lord about no-fault divorce, right? So, like, in, in spe- specifically, they ask him, I always have a hard time getting around my mic. Now I see why people use the mic arms. I really need to get one of those. But they specifically ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his life for any cause? Really interesting. And obviously, I think that this was one of the biggest... Um, Turns we took away as a government away from uh, morality. The left, I feel like progressives and atheists or agnostics would look at it as the proper separation of church and state. And I think for those of us in the church, those of us who are Christians, we would actually say that it's uh, a loss of morality. Because when you do separate yourself so far from the church, um, you lose a lot, right? And this is a, a perfect example of that. And I think that so many of the issues that we have today flow from the redefinition of marriage. So think about this. Think about the the history of marriage, right? And this is just, I mean, this is me like, no research on it, just common sense. So God creates the world from a Catholic's perspective, obviously, right? Which we believe is the truth, but I just wanted to clarify that. From a Christian perspective, <clears throat> God created Adam, sees that it's, as God says, unfit for man to be alone, decides to create him a helper, creates Eve. They're the first couple, the first married couple, right? They're to subdue the earth, they're to be fruitful and multiply, and they do that. <clears throat> In the Jewish tradition, it goes to get more solidified what marriage is over time. Um, obviously, as you know, the Israelites, as they were in the desert, were some real uh, turds. The majority of the times. So at a certain point, Moses gives them a way out of marriage through divorce. Jesus, as he comes along, um, one thing I think is really important is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he comes right not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, 
Jesus basically raises the standard, right? He raises the standard from Judaism and the law to Christianity and love and following his commandments. For example, he says in Matthew 5, you've heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? But Jesus turns and says, but I say to you, uh, if a man slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. If he, if somebody steals or, you know, asks you for your cloak, give him your jacket as well, right? Like goes on and on in adultery, right? Um, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, obviously one of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, but I say to you that even a man who lusts after a woman with his eyes has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So like the entire, the entire thing, right, is... Um, the entire thing is all about kind of taking us to the next level. So he gets this part about divorce and he's like, you've heard it said that you can divorce your wife. And he's like, no, you can't like, that was not how it was supposed to be. And so that that's kind of it. Right. So then Christian marriage becomes again, like this lifelong with very few outs, right. You hear there, Jesus talking about unchastity, other interpretations, uh, translations will have it. Um, you can't divorce her except for in cases of adultery which is obviously one of the top three leading causes of divorce, but it's not alone in it, right? Um, but then you fast forward up until, um, when, when was No Fault Divorce signed? In the 60s. Um, and the first state, the first governor to do this, I just told Emily this the other day because one of our few, I wouldn't I really, really call it uh I wouldn't really call it a um, a disagreement necessarily, but the uh, if we don't see necessarily eye to eye on the greatness of Ronald Reagan, I have my issues with Ronald Reagan, but he was the first one to sign this. So it, here it is. I finally got it up. Sorry, I was searching it. Governor Ronald Reagan signed the Family Law Act in 1969 into law, making California the first no default. Jeez. I can't read. I don't know what's wrong. Sometimes I think I'm dyslexic or something. I think I'm just crazy. Governor Ronald Reagan signed the Family Act Law of 1969 into law, making California the first no-fault divorce state in the nation. So California, not surprising that it was first, right? They lead the way on pretty much everything. That's terrible. And... um. But it is surprising that Ronald Reagan was the first one to sign it. Uh, from my understanding, he did later go on to say that it was the biggest mistake he made in his political career. Which is obviously big and, and great that he kind of at least came to that understanding eventually. So late 60s, you pass, pass forward, even before the 60s. I don't, I don't know this. I wish I would have looked it up, but I didn't think of it before. But obviously, Christian marriage becomes this lifelong thing. But at some point, the government starts getting involved in marriage. And so the government gets involved in marriage and starts to give like tax benefits, starts to like legally recognize married couples. And then you have uh, the legalization of divorce, no fault divorce specifically in the late 60s. Shortly thereafter, I know it was like adopted by all the states. <clears throat> and so that was obviously a huge game changer. One, I think the government getting involved in marriage at all made, made it confusing and gave an out to people to say, okay, is marriage a God thing or is it a government thing? Talk about the separation of church and state. Um, 
why would the government need to really be involved in marriage? I think the only reason is you would give tax benefits before it used to behoove and benefit married couples because married couples benefit a government and a society, namely because they create children and that helps to perpetuate that society. Having more children, having a bigger generation follow after the current generation helps to boost the economy, helps to boost the workforce, helps, you know, you have more soldiers, you have more everything, right? Because you have more people. You have more consumers and more producers, so the economy continues to grow in that way. But now we're having this issue, obviously, where like birth rates are declining and things like that, and people are like, does the government need to be involved in marriage at all? Um, should they incentivize people to have kids more? Should we have more tax breaks and things like that for families, similar to how they do in Hungary? Did you know in Hungary, if you have four kids, you don't pay taxes again for the rest of your life? I believe it's a 25% discount, basically, per child that you have. That you get on taxes. That'd be pretty sick to have. I'd be about it. So yeah. So there's that. Right. And so you have this kind of situation. Where the government takes over. It starts to confuse people. I think kind of water down what marriage is. Then in the late 60s. You have this increase in no fault divorce. And now we've gotten to the point. Where back then. Like most divorces would have been. Um, instituted or initiated by the man. Now the majority of divorces. Are in- initiated by the woman. And and no-fault divorce was really seen, I think, as an opportunity for women to escape the patriarchy, right? Like, I think it was an agenda item that was really pushed through feminism to say, uh, it can't just be the man's option whether or not to end a marriage, right? Like, the woman should have the choice to leave as well. Obviously, things went on to be, like, very unfair and unequal after that um, to, you know, from alimony to uh, child, um, not, what's the word? child support, but also um, custody, the custody of children, right? Like it almost always swayed in the side of the woman, no matter what, even if it was her fault or her deciding to leave. And so that obviously broke down the family in a big way. And I had never really thought about this until I read uh, It Is Right and Just by Scott Hahn. Really, really good book. And he was the first person in my life to uh, kind of point to this as like the beginning of societal downfall in a lot of ways, right? Because you think about it, I mean, it, the devil's the devil's just so tactical, you know what I mean? So strategic. To think about the fact that the civil rights movement happened in the '60s, and it's like, okay, so society's not segregated anymore. We're on the way to unity as a society. Black people are now going to have great opportunity, right, to um, advance and pursue equality and uh, crush it. And what do we do? I mean. You have no-fault divorce signed. Um, you have the introduction of birth control. I think it's, what, three, year, four years after this that abortion, Roe v. Wade happens. Abortion gets legalized, becomes the law of the land. Um, I mean, he made a lot of pro- – for, for losing the battleground on the civil rights movement and helping us to – or and losing the, the fact that we hated each other based on race for so long. He picked up that ground really quickly with those <laughs> several things. And so sex doesn't mean what it used to mean anymore to people. Marriage doesn't mean what it used to mean anymore to people. Then you fast forward, right? Now we're uh, 50 years after that time. Um, and many of us, many people out there, whether we we're raised in the church or not, the divorce rate amongst Catholics is the same as it is in the general population, right around that 50% mark. And then f- marriages after your first marriage are even higher, typically, higher percentage of divorce. 
we uh, have a lot of friends, a lot of kids who were raised um, in broken homes or with parents who were divorced. I think of my closest friends that I can remember from high school, um, two or three of them like still have parents who are, are still married. And I can think of one, two, three, four, five who are not. So that's six. So out of like my closest nine friends, um, three of them, two of them still have parents who are married. One lost a parent a few years ago. Um, so she passed away, but they were still married. So I still count them because they would still be married. Um, they were awesome. And then uh, there's the other six of us who have divorced parents. And and then the, the I mean, half of my family on my you know, half of my family, a lot of them never got married or like come from broken homes in some way. And then the other half, um, yeah, divorce is just on both sides. I would say either, either never getting married and having broken families or divorce, um, exists. And then I have, I do have some aunts and uncles who have been married, uh, for many years, but I've gotten to see this issue up close and personal for sure. Obviously through personal experience, cause my parents are divorced. Um, and I'll share a little bit about that in a second, but then also just seeing it from friends and family as well. And so I've gotten to see the impacts of it and what it does to people. But just again, going back to the social issue, I think it's so interesting. And this is this is where we get, this is where you see me start to get really defensive around some of these other topics, right? Um, I want to do a whole podcast with this and I want to bring somebody on to debate this with me. But just just as a quick aside, a quick example, um, in, in, in San Antonio last week, Somebody had asked a question to someone that was speaking about whether they think there should be prison time for a woman who gets an abortion in a place where abortion is illegal. Um, <clears throat> and the person answering the question basically said that there's extremists on the right, on the pro-life side that say uh, women should get the death penalty or women should go to prison. And she's like, no, it's the abortionists, the abortionists are the problem. And uh, as you can imagine, I'm one to you know, entertain a thought and measure it and see what I think about it. And I disagreed. I was like, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that there's circumstances where there should be a criminal penalty, definitely not the death penalty, but a criminal penalty for, um, a woman who goes to get an abortion. I think that there's arguments and logical arguments to say that, uh, up to 12 weeks or when it's early on, you don't really feel or know that you're pregnant um, there's a lot of emotions kind of going on. If it like, let's say we're in a state where it's totally illegal, like abortion is outlawed, right? Which doesn't exist anywhere from my understanding, maybe a couple states, maybe like Oklahoma. Um, but, and you get an abortion in like eight weeks. I don't think that that woman should necessarily go serve prison time. Right. I think there's an argument maybe for a probation or a fine or something like that. But I think if you think about it from the perspective of, a place where abortion is legal to 12 or 16 weeks, a woman who then goes to like get an abortion at eight months should serve prison time. That is my belief. I don't, I don't, there's no, there's no like emotional rushing or anything like that. You've been pregnant for a long time and you've known that you even had the opportunity in the state to get an abortion for four months, which is ridiculous, right? Or say three months, even at 12 weeks you've known. And that gives you what eight weeks to discern I mean, you know, you're pregnant at, at the latest, maybe five or six weeks. If you have any sense, right? Like you haven't had your period and you take a pregnancy test at five weeks. 
Um, <clears throat> and so you have seven or 11 weeks to discern that and to make a decision. I don't think men or other people are like forcing or manipulating women to getting abortions at eight months. So it's really, and you like feel the baby kicking in live and moving inside of you, right? Like you would know that this is a life, you know, that it has feet. You've been through multiple ultrasounds. I don't know why. I, I think to me at that point, it's the same as hiring a hitman. If, if a woman at eight months can, in a place where it's illegal after 12 weeks or 16 weeks can go and get an abortion, wh- why not? And, and, and not be penalized for it. Why then, then why would we penalize her if she had the baby at eight months? Um, it's totally viable, and she pays the doctor or a third party, a hitman, to kill the infant. She would go to prison then. How do we how do we rationalize that philosophy on the pro life movement? And here's what it is: abortion has become so normalized and so mainstream, and we've been so emotionally manipulated to actually have this um, compassion for the mother at every point when deciding or, or deliberating on whether or not to get an abortion that we've actually watered down the truth and we've watered down justice when it comes to that. That's what I think has happened. And um, I I think that I have a lot of sympathy, especially in cases of rape or incest. I have a lot of sympathy for women who are just poor or young or just like confused or scared. And they go in and, and they've been influenced by the world to think that this is not a life, to think that this is not a human being. And they go and get an abortion at, uh, uh, you know, abortion pill at six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, whatever it is. And having watched my wife now gone through the journey up until 17 weeks, I'm like, you definitely like things change over time, right? You start to see it more. Um, but there's definitely times in the early days where she's like, I don't really feel pregnant. It's so weird. Like I am pregnant, but I don't feel pregnant. And so I have a lot of sympathy for people in that stage. I have no sympathy and don't think that anybody outside of impacts or events for life of the mother I think that women who get abortions at eight months are monsters. I think that you have to be a crazy person. And the, if you've ever watched the videos of what happens in an abortion at eight months, it's not, I mean, an abortion at six, eight weeks is tough, but it comes out as blood clots. At eight months, you're pulling limbs apart to pull the baby out of the mother. And we've just been so, even on the pro-life side, we're like so moved with compassion for any mother who does it at any point that we kind of forget about it. And I think that's where the church has gotten when it comes to divorce. Where it's like, I mean, we give out annulments like they're going out of style, right? Like it's a, a, a um, shutting down the business, you know, sale, right? Like going out of business sale. And we're just like dishing out annulments left and right. Um, I've had multiple uh, older, like middle-aged women who are divorced Catholics who come and say to me, uh, there's one conversation with uh, a friend's mother I remember from several years ago. And she said to me, you know, like, I think uh, the church should do more, should do more ministering to those who have been divorced and, and things like that. And understand, I have a lot of sympathy and a lot of compassion for, for men or women who have been left by their spouse and they want to still be married. I think that's a really difficult thing. Um, <clears throat> because what do you do? I mean, obviously, like you, I have my trust in Emily, right, that she won't do that. And I think that everybody has that trust when you get married, especially as a Catholic. Um, and you think that your, your spouse is going to stay with you forever. And what if they leave, right? That's an option that they have. And I think that gets really tricky. And I think that we should be compassionate and definitely like work to heal those people. But again, it goes back to like the rape cases of abortion. That's a very small percentage, right? Like 
I have less compassion for somebody like this uh, particular woman that I've talked to or, and people like her that I've had other conversations with, where you were raised Catholic, married an entirely secular man, didn't raise your family Catholic, and then your husband left you. It's hard to make the same case that that's as compassionate as somebody who is a practicing Catholic woman or man married a practicing and faithful and devout Catholic woman or man, and they left them, right? Because you were marrying somebody who actually saw marriage as something that was lifelong, that was God, you know, ordained, um, and believes in this gospel where Jesus says, you cannot do that. But if you marry somebody who does not believe that and you are marrying them based on the government's definition of marriage, well, guess what? The government's definition of marriage has a government definition of divorce, and that is anything goes. So you kind of started playing a game by different rules, and you lost the game, but the play was inbounds. So naturally, that's going to make me a little bit less, right? That's like that's like you have a son, you have a son that goes to play a soccer game, and a daughter that goes to play a basketball game, right? And your daughter loses the basketball game because the other team scored more points, playing a totally fair game, right? They're not coming home complaining about the refs or anything. They were just they lost based on the rules of the game, um, and you might disagree with some of those rules, or you might have you know not liked the way some of those rules played out but the game was still played by the rules. Your son, on the other hand, lost because the other team picked up the ball at their hands and threw it into the net and the ref called it a goal. That's what I feel like two faithful Catholics, one of them getting divorced by their spouse with no adultery or wrongdoing like that taking place or emotional or mental abuse or physical abuse, when that is not present, that feels like the soccer loss to me. Where it's like, this is, this is like, wildly unjust right like this is wildly not fair not right if you choose as a catholic to fall away and you get married outside of the church and and have no faith then marriage to you and to your spouse presumably is the government's definition of it and the government has this out and i think that that's wrong but it's true and you knew that going into it so it doesn't mean that you can't mourn or that i'm not sad for you but this i i have more compassion for your kids who now have divorced parents because you chose to be reckless in the way that one, you chose your spouse, and two, the way that you went about handling it, right? And the way that you did not uh, practice your faith, the way that you did not do these things, right? Still sad, but I'm more sad for the kids than I am for the parent in that circumstance. And I don't think that the church has this responsibility then, after years of you being in catechesis, after years of you being formed, you reject everything Catholic or everything Christian, Go try to live life the world's way, get your ass kicked, and then you come back and you're like, the church didn't do enough to help me. And it's like, dude, the church was there the whole time. God was there the whole time, and you rejected him. You rejected his church. And so, yes, we have a responsibility, obviously, to be loving and welcoming and receive you back. But decisions have consequences, and that's part of what the church teaches as part of what Christ teaches. And so, yes, you have to come back and repent. Yes, you have to try to seek an annulment before you can if you agree to the divorce, eventually, you have to try to seek an annulment before you can receive communion and be fully integrated into the church again, because that is your vocation. And that's what I feel like we miss for a lot of people, is we miss setting up the structure that this is a really big deal. Like marriage is a really, really big deal. When you choose your vocation, you choose to make this commitment, 
is a primary vehicle for you getting you and your spouse to heaven. That's not something to take lightly. And so I think that's, it's just, it's really important. Um, and so I just wanted to say that first of all, because I think that that ended up without any outline at all. Being a very good segue into what is going to be the second half of this, which is the retreat and this focus on the adult children of divorce, because what all of that implies and what you kind of hopefully understood from that little history of just kind of a general common sense overview of the history of marriage, of the way a lot of people approach it, you can see that it is disordered to be divorced. It is disordered, meaning it is not in God's plan for the world or for you, for you to not be living with both of your parents and for them to not be married. It's disordered. That is not God's plan. That is not the way things are supposed to go. Um, and so, so now I'm kind of turning my attention and my, my direction to my fellow adult children of divorce out there. Um, it's not abnormal for you to feel stress and anxiety around the holidays when you have to balance Thanksgiving between mom and dads or see them at different places. It's not, it's not anxiety. It's not abnormal for you. And it's not wrong for you to feel stressed about your wedding day and your parents coming together and you, anytime you have to bring them together into the same room or place. And you know that there's going to be animosity and disdain towards each other. That's not, that's not your fault. And it's, it's not wrong that you feel that it's actually right that you feel that. Um, Maybe I shouldn't say it's right, but it's natural for you to feel that because that's from the beginning. It was not so as our Lord said, and it was not meant to be. So you were meant to be raised in a loving home with two parents and you did not have that. And even if your parents got divorced as an adult, you probably didn't have that growing up. And even if your parents got divorced when you were an adult, you still deserve to have that now. That's one of the biggest things I've kind of learned about. And what was really interesting in hearing so many other people kind of have a similar experience is just like when there's a break in the home, like you just automatically have to grow up faster. Because like part of your childhood is just kind of gone in a certain sense, right? Like there's naturally some responsibility that should have been the responsibility of one of your parents that gets put onto you. Sometimes that's becoming a confidant or a friend of sorts to the other parent that's left remaining. Sometimes that could be work duties around the house, chores and things like that, that um, you shouldn't have been responsible for. Sometimes just an emotional weight. Sometimes it's a financial burden, right? Kids have to go work earlier because they're living in a single parent household and not work earlier to develop a work ethic or to um, start to learn how to manage their own money or to learn job skills, but to help sustain and support their family. Um, There's a number of issues, a number of challenges that can arise from that. And so for those of you who don't know, my parents were divorced. My parents were on and off from my memory from about 10 to 13 or 14. Um, One thing that was really difficult for me in those years was from ages 10, 11, and 12, each summer I went away for something. I went to Australia when I was 10. 11, drove on a cross-country road trip with my grandparents. And then 12, I feel like I went somewhere there too, but I can never remember what the 12, but I thought it happened three years in a row. 
where I left and my dad was not living with us and I came home and they were together again. Which for me as a kid, looking back on it, was probably the biggest uh, mind frick for, um, yeah, cursing purposes <laughs> was that I was gone. It seemed, it seemed to me before, before like there would be a fallout, it seemed very clear that there was issues between them. And then I would leave, come back, and they'd be like happily together again. And so it's hard at 11 to not think like, am I the problem here? You know what I mean? Am I the, am I the root of this? Am I the issue? Am I the drama, as they say? Um, yeah, and so that was interesting. And then I went on for a while, and then, uh, yeah, lots of fighting, my dad uh, being unfaithful and... Um, Eventually, back in high school, I, I'm pretty sure my dad lived with us all of high school. And then my parents actually ended up getting divorced after a big fight my father and I got in at the beach um, after my freshman year of college. And so I super dreaded coming home for a summer. I was loving life. Every break was pretty rough when I was in college. Um, and what was sad about it, too, was, was my mom was so on edge often that I had a worse relationship with her throughout those years because. She was very on edge. I was very defiant and would, um, like as time went on, got less and less willing to walk on the eggshells around my dad um, and was willing to just, you know, burn it down. I'm, I'm, the, I'm mildly combative, as you might imagine. And so uh, that made it really difficult. But then, you know, uh, after my freshman year, I had really developed my prayer life for the first time. I was really like truly becoming Catholic living out my faith, really serious about it. And I came home and um, I was right on the verge of getting an ROTC scholarship as well, which was really big for me because it made me less reliant on my dad financially, um, which to me was going to sever the ties of manipulation and uh, bad treatment, right? Like I'm going to be my own person now. You get to choose whether or not by your behavior and your the way you treat me, the way you respect my boundaries, if you're going to like what your role will be in my life. And that's been true for the last decade now. And it's ebbed and flowed accordingly, in my opinion. Um, but we get in this huge fight, uh, like halfway through the week. We actually, this is, I think, so funny about this when I reflect on it. We went on vacation that summer with uh, my college roommate, Tommy, my mom, and myself. We went to f for a full week. And beforehand, from my recollection, my mom and I decided to have my dad my sister and her kids come down on Wednesday of the week so we could at least have a few days basically without my dad um, because he was very, I mean, exquisitely talented at um, ruining vacations and holidays. Uh, it was a true gift. Some of the biggest fights and problems always came from those two times. It, it was interesting strategy. But we do that. And so he gets there on like Wednesday afternoon. Literally, I'm driving to dinner it's me and Tommy, I think, in the front seat, my dad in the back seat. And I just remember coming up to this intersection that was, like, kind of busy. And it was one of those where I was, like, at a stop sign and I had to cross all the way across. We had some beach in New Jersey. And he's, like, backseat driving me, you know, like, yelling at me what to do. And I just, like, start pushing back and start going off. And he literally didn't come into the restaurant and said he was going home that night. And my mom told him to have his stuff out by the time he got home. So it was just like so picture perfect. And that was that was like the predictably unpredictable, right? Was kind of the 
the feeling, the vibe of the house um, was we could predict that like something was going to go wrong once he was there. Um, you didn't know when, but it was like inevitably there's going to be some problem, some beef, some issue. Uh, despite the fact that the three of us had managed for four days to have a great time. <laughs> we were able to get along. So, it, I mean, it just made one wonder who, like, who's the root of this issue? Why are we able to get along so well when he's not around, me and my mom? Why do we also fight more when he is around? You know, Tommy was a new friend. I mean, I just met him. Like, the year before that, I actually hated him because we played against each other in high school basketball. We were kind of rivals. And then we become homies. We had a great time. Why can we all get along so well? And then it was like, suddenly we do not. Suddenly pieces left the chat. So yeah, so really interesting stuff. Um, so that's kind of my story uh, in a quick nutshell. And then, yeah, they ended up getting divorced and all the stuff that follows from that. And so, yeah, I think one of the big things that was really powerful for me on this retreat, going back to what I was just talking about, this, this was the first nugget that I got on like the first night um, this woman, Emily, shared. And she said, even if you were a champion or a promoter or an encourager or a fan of your parents getting divorced or separating, it's still not what you really wanted. And that was me to a T. I mean, from the time I was 10 or 11, I mean, we would have to take a financial hit. It was like, we might have to move. We might have to do all this stuff. And I was like, literally, what could be more important than not living like this, right? Uh, My mom and I would have these debates about like, is this worth it, man? Like, why do we keep letting him come back when it's just so miserable and we're so happy when he's gone, right? Um, which such a, I, I mean, you don't think about it when it's so common, right? When everybody you know is kind of in a similar boat. But that's obviously like not a great way to look at the world and not the way that a 10 or 11-year-old should be debating uh, their stance on their parents' marriage or whether they want their parents to get divorced or not, right? I used to I used to have this debate oftentimes and, and thought about it really after I had a, a long conversation with one of my sisters one time, um, who my dad was very much not in, in her life nearly as much as he was in mine. And I was like, man, I never I don't think I ever voiced this to her, but I was just like, I wonder like what's worse? You wishing that your dad was present or you wishing that he was gone? It's a powerful thing, man, to think about like both are so heartbreaking and both are so, again, disordered and broken and not the way that things ought to go, right? You should be just grateful and happy when your dad comes home. You should be joyful. He should be a source of joy and protection and safety and development and formation in your life. And I think it's really sad for those of us who don't have that, right? When you don't have what that ought to be. And we can have compassion, I think, for our parents, right? Who are who themselves came from broken homes, who came from broken families. And um, to a certain extent, both of my parents did. Um, my mom's father passed away when she was 17. And so she was kind of an adult child of a broken family um, in a certain way. And then my dad was just in a broken family, always uh, really abusive, physically abusive and mentally, emotionally abusive father. Um, who he unfortunately was named after as well, which I know is always really hard for him. But um, yeah, you know, you can have compassion for them, but still have your boundaries. You can still have your self-respect and the ability to 
yeah, just draw lines where you think they need to be drawn and have an understanding too. I think of there's a, there's a proper level of accountability and compassion, right? So you can have compassion for, okay, you came from these circumstances you came from, but still there is so much that you very clearly just through natural reason, if we believe in natural law and natural reason, there was so much you could have done, right? To, to be better, to be closer to the man or the woman, the mother or the father that I needed, um, that that can cause a lot of pain. And I think that too often because of the normalization of divorce, because of the the tropes and the stupid platitudes that you hear after your parents get divorced, like, oh, well, at least they're happy now. It'll be better for the kids. Um, aren't you glad you don't have to deal with the fighting or this anymore? Or people sometimes with me, like, aren't you glad you don't have to deal with your dad as much? And it's like, it's so mind effing, man, because you're just like, sh- should I be happy about that? Right? Like, is it better for the kids? It's never better for the kids than a healthy home with a mother and a father. Never. Um, who gives a shit if your parents are happier at the end of the day? Well, you know what I mean? Not, not that we shouldn't care about our parents' happiness now as adults, but when you're 10? Like, I mean, I think of, like, my happiness as a father. Like, where does that rank on my obligations and responsibilities to my kids and my wife? You know? It's pretty low. Um, and ironically, when I take good care of the other responsibilities, I'm actually pretty happy anyways, which is mind-blowing, right? It's like when I actually live life the way that I'm supposed to, I'm really happy. And when I don't, I'm not. That's like, to me, that's like, that's pretty basic math. That's not very complex. So, um, but anyways, going back to what Emily said, you know, I was somebody very young. I was, I was kind of promoting it and kind of supporting and encouraging even my parents to get divorced at least to my mom. And when she said that that night, I was like, wow. She said, it's not what you really wanted. What you really wanted was two parents that loved each other and a healthy home to be raised in, right? Like a healthy childhood and a um, virtuous family. Like that's what you really wanted. And I had never really put that together before. It was, I feel like both simple and profound at the same time where it was like, wow. You're so right. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't want that. And even today, you know, like when I go home and you just have that like natural discomfort, like my mom had to sell our childhood house and um, I go home and I'm like, what do I do about seeing my dad and how do I work that out and the families? And I would love, I mean, it would be amazing to go home and I'd be so much more eager to go home. Um, Obviously, if that were not the case, right? I had like things been good all along and I could go home and we'd still have like our Christmas and Thanksgiving traditions. And, um, be, especially I think getting married was really eye opening to that. And I had to grieve the loss of that in a whole new way of being like, I haven't even gotten to drive Emily by my childhood home yet. Right. I've seen her first one multiple times where she lived until they were like five or so. She was like five or so. And then obviously I've spent a ton of time in her actual childhood home. I mean, I've, and I've, I've stayed there, right? Like I've lived at her parents' house for like eight weeks now combined, probably maybe not that long, maybe six, but, um, yeah, you know, I've gotten to see so much of it and know so much of it, um, versus my mom now lives like 20 minutes away from even where my childhood home was. So like even to go to that area or like some of the restaurants and things we went to, um, is very rare. Uh, and now I live in Emily's area, right? Like, so we live where she kind of grew up. And so I don't have any animosity, obviously, to, towards her for that. And I don't think that we should towards our spouses. But um, 
I don't, I don't think it should necessarily create animosity towards any individual, but I do think there's a certain mourning and grieving of that loss that we ought to have, that we should be able to have. And the the tough part about it, and I saw this through the retreat as well, is the parents, the divorced parents, often out of guilt and this mixed feeling of responsibility for something that they know was bad, but they participated in anyways, um, to some degree or another. Again, either participated by getting divorced, or even if you're not the parent that was divorced, like for many of these examples that I know of, choosing a horrific partner to either just have sex with or to um, date or be around, like that is part, that's, that's the participation that I think is the frustrating part. And a lot of times I think with, with the adult parents, it, it comes to like, well, I didn't want to get divorced or I did my best in the marriage. And it's like, yeah, but I'm still kind of struggling with like you picking that partner in the beginning, right? Like I'm not even mad at 50 year old you, I'm more curious about 30 year old you, right? Like that's sometimes a difficult part, but a lot of times the parents, I think because there's so much hurt there and wounds and feelings that they, uh, oftentimes don't, I don't want to say don't encourage, they don't, but it, that kind of is it. They don't encourage or understand the need for healing for the children of divorce. And that's really tough. I mean, the, the stories, man, it was heartbreaking of, of some of the people like in my small group or just at the retreat in la- at large who would tell us, you know, I, my parents, uh, or my mom, you know, like when I told her I was coming on this retreat, like got super mad at me and yelled at me and said, you know, was I not enough for you? I was a single mother. I did my best. Like there's like this guilt of it. Right. Um, or parents that are like, why would you need to do that? Like, and it comes back to this, like societal going all the way back to my abortion example and why I laid that out. So, so clearly, so thoroughly was we've gotten so numb to it that we legitimately don't see the effects of it. We don't see, we don't even really evaluate intentions and we don't really see or evaluate the effects. And so it's so normalized that you do hear so many people in society that are like, oh, good, like it's better for the kids. It's better for, and it's like, it's not. I, I see, I mean, I'm devastated. People that I know on Facebook who will celebrate, they'll be like, oh, I'm divorced. So they celebrate their like divorce anniversary and stuff like that, like with kids. And it's like, that's not it. I mean, you're, you're celebrating and like promoting. your biggest L in your life that you might've taken at no fault of your own. Again, it goes back to my sports example earlier. There's a number of ways you might've taken that L, but it's still your biggest L why you would celebrate it. I don't know. I don't know any athlete that does that. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's a really, really interesting thing, really interesting way to look at it. But a lot of times parents, again, they don't encourage you or understand that you need to get that healing, but you do, and you deserve that. Um, and I think that it's important for us to to state that to our friends. Uh, I think it's important to say that and share that with ourselves, you know, and I think there's just a ton of healing that can come from it because I started to understand myself in a whole new light through this retreat to say, okay, maybe my my brokenness and my issues and my struggles with so many sins and things for so long, I was like, this is just like, I'm just evil and bad inside. And I was finally able to see how many of my, like this classic, like, I kind of feel like I always felt like the the hurt people hurt people, right? Or wounded people wound others. Like, I feel like I always understood that for other people, but never for myself. 
And I never really took it to say, wow, like a lot of my wounds and my brokenness have actually led to me using and lying to and hurting other people in ways I never thought I was capable of. And I never fully understood it. And it really healed such a deep part of my life, I feel like, in my heart and my self-image to say like, wow, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I need a savior. Yes, I am flawed and evil in many ways in my own heart. But I was like robbed of the formation and the place and the setting that I needed to truly become a virtuous, holy young man and teenage boy. And um, lacking that, it, it, there's this fine balance between saying my sins and my issues and my mistakes are somebody else's fault and saying um, that the impacts and the effects and the things I was robbed of by somebody else, whether it be parents, friends, an ex relationship, whatever, did have some contribution to the way that I lashed out, the way that I reacted with those wounds, right? Um, and I think that we should obviously take the latter approach. I don't think that we can blame every mistake that we made or issues that we have, right? Whether you're addicted to drugs now or an alcoholic or um, you cheated on people as well, you know what I mean? Whatever it might be, like you can't blame that on other people, but you can start to see that the source of that was not necessarily you being an awful person, but actually uh, the result of certain brokenness in your own life. All right, so I kind of want to turn here. I want to read part of, they gave this really great booklet that kind of came with the retreat um, with life-giving wounds. And I want to read something from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Read again what the Catechism and kind of going back to what the Church teaches. Obviously, we talked about Scripture earlier. And I want to talk about, um, uh, yeah, read from the Catechism, paragraph 2385, quote, Divorce introduces disorder into the family and into society. This disorder brings grave harm to the deserted spouse, to children traumatized by the separation of their parents, and often torn between them, and because of its contagious effect, which makes it truly a plague on society. Now, you can tell that that's obviously no light language, right? And so um, that is really, really powerful stuff. Uh, of just w- the way the church really views what divorce is, what it does uh, to the human person. Um, and I want to kind of go into some of these key points that they talk about. Um, one that kind of came up from, you know, some of my prayer and reflection that really kind of was uh, born out of one of their key points here in their second talk was our parents, this is a quote from the booklet, our parents' divorce or separation has had a deep effect on our identity and our relationship with God. So I want to talk about that for a second because I think there's two big points to that. And and one is something that I had dealt with to a certain extent a long time before, which is the fact that oftentimes you'll see in people who have had, um, whether or not your parents are divorced, but if you just had a rocky relationship with a parent, you'll often, that'll often uh, um, bleed into your relationship with God the Father, right? So if you had a, a rocky relationship with God, if you had a rocky relationship with your earthly father, a lot of times your heavenly father um, will take on the image in your mind of your earthly father. And so if your um, earthly father was abusive or manipulative or um, unloving or harsh, or you, you assume that God the Father is similar. Right. And I kind of started to notice that in my own relationship with God the Father, really when I was about 21, 22, I read the book Fathered by God by John Eldridge, which is kind of a, it could be either a follow up or a precursor to Wild at Heart. 
um, probably best as a follow-up, I think. And I read it after, and it was really powerful for me. I remember I was sitting in the barbershop once, and it was the only time, I think, I've ever read a book that like made me emotional. I had like never really gotten emotional reading before. But I was like, wow, that's some deep stuff, thinking about it. I don't remember what line or what part it was, but uh, I highly encourage all men um, to read that book. Uh, and I think it's also good for mothers of, um, for boy moms to read it as well. So, um, the other thing I think is if you had a tough relationship with your mother, a lot of times that can affect our relationship with the blessed mother, right? With Mary. Uh, and so those are two things like if you, I think it's good for anybody to evaluate. If you had a less than good relationship with either parent, it's worth evaluating how does that impact your relationship with Mary or with God, the father. And for me, I always told people, and I think it was really easy for me to be drawn to Mary more naturally because my mom was my stable one. She was the more loving one. She was a more consistent one in my life that like to Jesus through Mary to me made a ton of sense. And I thought that it was really natural where I struggled more is with my relationship with God, the father. What I come to realize on this retreat was that as my I thought that I kind of healed that when I was around 22 or whatever. And what I came to see was that as my relationship with my earthly father ebbed and flowed throughout the years, my relationship with God, the father also ebbed and flowed. So I thought it was kind of like this once healed, always healed, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And it, it wasn't the case. And I think that's true for a lot of this. This is something that was really reiterated throughout the retreat. I feel like is that your healing is a process and it, it takes time and it's, um, extensive, right? It's really um, not something that just kind of happens overnight, but it's going to be continuous and you'll see different parts in your parenting and in different aspects of your marriage um, as, as life goes on, where some of those wounds and things will come back up. And so that's why it's kind of this consistent um, building of healing. Okay. And so the other aspect of it is kind of comes from the Trinity, and so, if you know about the Trinity, um, we believe that God the Father begot the Son, right? So, begotten by the Father. Um, and then the love between the Father and the Son is so strong that it actually is a third person. It actually meant it, it, it is a third person, third being, being the Holy Spirit. And that is the best example of that oftentimes given in marriage prep or in marriage or just in classes or catechesis is that that's what marriage is, right? And the child is that physical representation, the personification of the love between the mother and the father, between the husband and the wife. They love each other. There's obviously the consummation of the marital act, um, meaning that the husband and wife have sex with each other. And the fruit of that, the fruit of their love for one another, because sexual act is meant to be an act of love, a renewal of marriage vows, um, they actually conceive a child, right? A child flows forward from that. And so that's ultimately what we're supposed to be. Um, we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be the, the physical representation, the personification of our parents' love for one another. And so think of how distorted and how manipulated and how ultimately evil it is, right? The devil really wins here when not only do parents get divorced, but let's say you look like um, 
let's say you're living with one parent and you look or remind them or laugh like or have interests that are similar to the parent that is now left. In a lot of uh, situations, that will lead to animosity coming from the parent that's still around. It's not only are you mourning the loss of the parent that's not there, but you remind the other parent of that parent and you then get treated harshly because of that. That's like the utter opposite of what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to be in a loving family where the parents love each other so much that they love the child as an extension of their love for their spouse. Obviously, they love the child for the child's own sake, and you can, but really, I feel like in the most fulfilled and normal and healthy way, it's supposed to almost be like my love for my wife extends to the love for the children, right? That's why the marriage is supposed to remain primary, the primary relationship in the family, you see that obviously changing in a lot of families today that uh, really prioritize over all else, the children and their relationship with their children. And you see that that just makes so many different things uh, disordered, right? And the relationship that parents have with their children, trying to be friends with your children instead of being the parent, right? Because you have that friendship and that companionship fulfilled with your spouse, you have first, first, we're supposed to have this fulfillment of this relationship with God, right? This God sized hole we have in our heart. But then we also have this like hole in need for a spouse as parents, um, which is natural, that ultimately has to get fulfilled somewhere or it just causes a lot of pain in its emptiness, right? And so there's multiple different ways you can kind of go about it. Um, so, kind of going on here to another kind of key point that they have here. Uh, I really like this quote. Our suffering as adult children of divorce or separation points to our desire for true lasting love is offered by Christ in the sacrament of marriage. Christ reveals the meaning and model for love. And what I think is really important about in this one, it says, the, you know, the quote, the scripture verse that this, this talk used and kind of was based on was 1 John 4 uh, verses eight, verse 18, in which is the quote, perfect love drives out fear. And so obviously we know that that is true, right? Um, that perfect love drives out fear, but you still see with so many kids. And I think this, this is where it gets really, really sad for me when those wounds are unhealed. And I got to see this, you know, with some people both at the retreat and then just friends and, and people that I know in my life who have been adult children of divorce um, is you don't get these, these things healed. And then it ends up delaying or hurting your vocation, right? And so what do I mean by that? It means that you are so wounded by the terrible example of the pain of your parents' divorce, of their marriage even that you witnessed, that you don't get married, that you're so fear of commitment, you're so fear of getting married, you're so fear of having the same brokenness, you're so afraid of hurting or damaging your own kids that even, even if you get married, maybe you don't have kids or you're trying to not have kids because you're worried about it. And you see, I mean, it's just so apparent. You see all these adults in their late 20s, early, mid-30s who are either not married or are childless. And you just have to wonder with so many times of how much did their experience like really with their parents and their example that they had affect them. Because obviously it's not zero. But if we don't get these wounds healed, then we're not able to go either and just commit ourselves in marriage uh, and commit ourselves in raising a family uh, and having a kid or 
um, we get into it and then we feel inadequate and we end up repeating the same things, the same mistakes. And so that's why I think, you know, this is where like the healing and wounds and mental health, like in therapy and all this kind of comes from retreats, uh, is history. You know, they say like history is bound to repeat itself and that's not necessarily true, but untreated or ignored history is very likely to repeat itself. Right. So it means I'm not, I'm not obliged to become as an individual. This is like me speaking in the general eye, not me specifically, but I or you are not obliged to become your father or your mother. You're not obliged or, or destined to repeat their mistakes. But if you don't treat and work through and heal from the wounds that they've given you, then you're much more likely to do it. Then it might even be inevitable. Right. If you're not actually taking the time to, um, yeah, go through that healing that's so necessary. And, and one thing that's a good sign of that, you know, I, I heard uh, this quote that I wrote down in my notebook unhealthy self protection needs to be healed and transformed into authentic self giving. Right. And, and so we have to learn the balance, right, of healthy boundaries, of how to have healthy self respect. Um, and learn to heal ourselves so we can truly be a gift to other people. We can give ourselves to other people. And just to reiterate my kind of take on uh, healing and mental health stuff in general, I think that we oftentimes, um, we do one of two things. We live in these extremes where we either treat a uh, paper cut like it needs surgery to fix. Or on the other extreme, we have a bullet wound, right? Like a gaping chest wound, a, a sucking chest wound, and we act like a, a Band-Aid and just like time and Neosporin will heal it, right? That, I think, is um, the, the two ways we kind of go about it. And so you have to discern it yourself, like, where am I at, Right? Because undoubtedly, I think, I think undoubtedly, without a doubt, 100% of the time, when your parents get divorced, you have a wound that needs treatment, like it needs medical care. And that medical care can be triaged and treated in different ways and, and might be able to just be healed through prayer and adoration and confession and um, talking about it with a friend. It might require therapy. It might require going on retreats like this one. And ongoing work and processing and thinking about it and talking about it and working through it. There could be a number of different things, right? There's different levels to all of it. Um, and so that's why I think it's really important for us to recognize is that we have to um, be mindful of this. And we have to be intentional about our healing because it's nobody's responsibility for your healing now that you're an adult. It's great. And I would say probably morally necessary for them, for your parents to be um, supportive and encouraging and loving as you go through that process, but you're not, but them being encouraging or supportive is not a prerequisite for your responsibility or your ability to take care of it yourself. And I don't mean take care of it yourself, I mean you have to go it alone, but seeking the help, seeking the resources, seeking the things, making time for the prayer, making time for the retreat, making time for therapy budgeting and making the financial sacrifices that it takes to do those things um, so that you can get the healing that you need.
Um, yeah, so I think that's really important. The other thing, kind of next one, next kind of big point is it says anger and anxiety are common emotions after our parents' divorce or separation. Now I'm jumping around from like talk to talk, right? Because we can't go through all of it. And I don't, I don't, I mean, yeah, you got to go on the retreat to actually go through all of it. And they have them all over the country. So I highly, I'll obviously have the links and stuff in there and I highly encourage you to look them up. But uh, yeah, it just, just talks about the necessary, the, the need for virtue, the need for confession, the need for the Eucharist to help us face these struggles and to build the virtues necessary to regulate and integrate our emotions into love and communion with others. And so, uh, again, this kind of goes back to what I talked about earlier with my own example. But one of the challenges for us as we grow up and we're parents of, or we're adult children of divorce, is like this combination or this this balance, right? This this tug of war between, or I guess it's not necessarily tug of war, but between forgiveness and reconciliation, right? It's not, it's not a tug of war, but um, can you have one without the other and are both required all the time? Right. And that I think is a really difficult, uh, thing to, to deal with. Right. Um, I think, you know, how do you discern that? How do I discern? And this is something I wrestle with often. How do I discern, you know, when there's times that I, uh, it's like I can forgive my parent, but do I have the same relationship with them? I can forgive my parent, but do I have to still spend every holiday with them? Do I still have to call them once a week? Like, where do you kind of find the balance, right? Of like, um, I may have forgiven, but what does reconciliation necessarily look like, right? Um, and that I think is a really challenging thing for us to all balance and us to all kind of consider and discern. And I think you have to discern that within your own heart right is is you have to this this is kind of my this is kind of my guidepost for this and this goes for friends family um i would say it's it's not the same for your spouse because your spouse is a unique relationship to all others in your life especially when it comes to the need for reconciliation because you basically do always have a need for reconciliation with your spouse um and I say basically always, because obviously there is times for separation or even divorce when you're talking about physical abuse, continued adultery and things like that. But this is kind of my guide stick. And I, I just kind of shared this in San Antonio last week, so it's helpful. Um, is, is this person, is there a chance, right, after forgiveness that this person will at least be able to grow into a neutral influence in my life. Because presumably, if you're even debating this, the person has at times or always been an active negative influence in your life. We can experience and we can kind of gauge and measure whether or not somebody's good for us and, and, and pretty much whether or not they're good in and of themselves, but we, there's no real need to kind of judge other people in that way. But I think it's the same judgment, but in order to not be judgmental of the heart and soul of another person, I think it's easier to just say, the relationships in my life, the good ones are the ones that make me a better version of myself. That either make me or facilitate or make it easier for me to become a better version of myself. So obviously there's going to be a scale to that. And then I think there's a whole scale of like, 
is somebody kind of like a neutral influence, right? I think there's kind of three main things. So either somebody does do that, and we call those virtuous friendships, virtuous relationships. Um, and they might not even be like totally like the peak, uh, you know, virtuous relationships as defined by like Aristotle. Because I think you only have a few of those in your life. But still, is it like a net positive, right? So even if it's a friendship or, or something of utility or pleasure, we need utility and pleasure in our lives. Um, and maybe somebody who, maybe they make you a little bit more anxious or they can be a little negative or pessimistic, but you still have great conversation with them or you still know that they pray for you or you still know that they would be there for you if you needed help or a circumstance like that. But there comes a time, and that would be an example, I think, of a, of a neutral person, right? Where it's like, there's obvious and clear downsides and ways that they impact you in a negative way. Uh, but maybe you can curb or um, limit those, right? So how can I limit the downside? So if somebody who like a college friend that maybe encourages you to drink too much, maybe I don't go out with them on Saturday night, but I can still watch football with them or have lunch with them or talk to them on the phone or whatever. And there's kind of a balance there. And then there's people that it's just, you can't limit the negative, the negative side. There's wounds there from the past that make the negative, each, each existing cut just goes deeper and deeper versus because you never even given the time to heal. Those are the hardest relationships I feel like. And that happens often with parents is if you imagine like a physical wound on your body, if, if the same kind of attack or strike or wounding is happening in the same spot without even giving the time to properly heal, right? So you have some forgiveness and then two weeks later, it's like the same shit happens you're kind of like the wound's still fresh, right? Like you haven't even had time to heal. And, and some of the stuff can take years to heal. And obviously nobody's going to be perfect for years, but there's some obvious things that you can just avoid as a decent human being. And so when that line gets crossed over and over again, I mean, there was examples of the retreat of some of the leaders even saying, uh, you know, I haven't talked to this parent in a really long time. And Sorry, I just had to sneeze. There's uh, a time and a place for doing that. Um, and that's got to come out of the sermon of one's own heart. But that's kind of my gauge of, you know, especially as I, I, I've, I've learned, and, and as I said, you know, marriage has been really eye-opening for me in this. But I've come to understand, too, of like, I, as I hit these new uh, phases of my life, I, I adopt these new titles of husband and father. Um, I am, I mean, it's not even 99 to one. I am 100 to zero committed to being a good husband and father now uh, compared to maintaining any existing relationships with any friends or family members who strongly oppose my ability to do that, either through words or example. Um. I like I it's not like it's just so lopsided. I've been so dedicated to it for the last 10 years. And I've seen and, and and saying that, right? Saying that I've been dedicated to trying to be a good husband and father now for the last 10 years of my life, right? Because I really am about 10 years into my journey of healing and conversion and uh development and seeking excellence, right? I can look back over the decade and realize how abysmal many of my failures were during that time. And so now realizing, even though I was really dedicated to it, I see how the ties to certain people and certain things made it really difficult to do that. And so now that I'm actually like in it, now it's like I'm in it obviously for marriage and I'm 
rapidly approaching it for fatherhood, I just have no desire, and not even just no desire, but logically I can't justify or rationalize um, bringing things back into my life that I know have caused me to stumble and fall before. It doesn't make any sense. I need to eradicate those things from my life, right? Remove those things, remove those stumbling blocks from myself. And when you had the conversation with people multiple times of, this is what I need from you. Um, or at least like, I need you to not do these things. If we're going to continue to have a relationship and people just continuously don't do that. I think, you know, it's kind of like the quote where when people show you who they are, believe them. If you, if you create that, and, and I think you have an obligation to communicate your needs and your desires and your wants and your boundaries. Otherwise, I think that it's all on you. If your boundaries are getting crossed and you've never communicated them, and then they get crossed and you don't communicate that they've been crossed, you got to give people a few times, um, depending on how egregious the crossing is. Um, but you have to give, you have to explain them, right? Like you have an obligation to express that, that nobody can read your mind or know what you need or want. You're not an infant, right? So you have to be able to express and communicate your needs and desires. And, but once that's happened, once you say to somebody, like, if you continue to do this and, uh, that we're not gonna be able to have a relationship or it's going to be very strained or distant and they do that, they're telling you that they're, they prefer that thing over having a close relationship with you. And even if that's your mother or your father, I think that as a, as a future mother or father, as a future or current, you know, husband or wife, I think you have an obligation to respect that decision of the other person for the sake of your family. I see too many people that are like still constantly trying to like please or approve or um, make it work with parents who just like aren't great. And I think there's a place where you can honor and respect your mother and father without it having to be at the detriment of your parenting. Because I think that your responsibility to be a good steward your responsibility to be a good leader, your responsibility to your vocation is higher than that. Honoring your father and mother is your commandment. Being a husband and a father is your vocation. And there's so many duties and responsibilities that come underneath that. But the best way to be a great husband or father or mother or wife is to be as holy and as excellent as you can be. And so, if somebody else is actively pulling you down from that because they refuse to get their own shit together, I think you have a right and you're justified in creating space and distance between you and that person. Uh, whether that be physically or relationally, emotionally, whatever. So we have to think about that. It's definitely something that's worth praying about um, and really considering and discerning because yeah, I just think it's super sad. I've never bought into the whole, like, you have to stay close to your family forever. And obviously, I don't think, I mean, I think I have one family member that still listens to this podcast, maybe a couple. But I'm sure many of them know that, like, I don't, I don't believe in that. And I wish at times that there was, there's family members that I wish I was closer to. There's family members that I could be closer to and don't really want to. Um, and I think that if I lived in Pennsylvania, obviously there's some that I would definitely be closer with. And I love many people in my family, but I have realized, and I think you come to realize through evangelization, through working with other people that you can't save and change everybody. 
And the best way to make a positive impact on the world is not trying to make a a 2% impact in somebody who's obstinate and stubborn and hard-hearted and does not desire to change rather than making a 90% impact in the lives of many other people, but especially those of your spouse and your kids who can go on to become game changers, right? World-changing people through their example um, and who they are and, and the impact that they'll make, they'll go on to make, right? So it's like, you know, I can, I can flower and I can water the, the plants, I can water the, the, the ground, the good soil, or you can water the weeds and you can water the, the thorns and you can water the sidewalk and, and hope that, you know, out of the concrete, a flower, concrete, a flower will grow. But sometimes it doesn't. And then you just realize you just wasted 50 years of water. And I kind of saw that early on in my life. And I think that it's sad. I think we all want to be that, but I'm not going to deprive my kids of having a good, holy, loving home for the sake of trying to reach and grasp at a good, holy, and loving home that I don't have. I don't think that that's just or fair to them. And so we have to, I've said this many times, we have an obligation to get healed. We have an obligation to seek out a good spouse, a good uh, parent for our kids because we have the option and the opportunity to make a difference for them. And I've seen the the brokenness, man. I've seen it result in addiction. I've seen it result in hurting people. I've seen it result, again, in um, not pursuing your vocation, these friends of mine who are not married. And then I see the friends, too, who are just like repeating it. Sure, they might not have picked as bad of a spouse, but I have friends who have uh, either gotten married or date people or whatever that um, they're they're not going to church. They're not um, raising their kids in the faith. They're not really doing anything parenting-wise or even marriage-wise that's different. And I think that it'll be better, but I'm like, why, why go from a two to a four when you can try to go from a two to an eight? And I get it. I mean, it's hard. You need examples. You need influence. You need formation. But there's something about coming out of that brokenness, man, that, you, that people just get really stuck in their ways and really stuck in the ways they think things should go and the, what they should do. And that's why I think the Catholic faith is really it, man, because it's not a monarchy or it's not a uh, democracy. It's a monarchy, right? And we have Christ as our king, the chair of Peter, the pope who represents him here on earth. And we don't have this like ability to just kind of be flexible with our feelings and what we decide. We, we can't pick and choose what to believe in. And so when you're cohabitating and you're on birth control and you choose, I'm going to be pro-choice and I'm going to be pro-same-sex marriage, like you're just living by your own way. And that's, that ultimately, ultimately is the cause of every divorce and every bit of brokenness is that people choose to live for themselves and in their own way and make themselves their own God instead of trusting in God, the father, Jesus Christ, and, and, and God's plan for our lives. Sorry, I don't know why I'm losing my, uh, I feel like I'm really raspy today. But that's the, that's the root of all of it, right? The root of all of it is sin and evil and the corruption in man's heart. As, as Jesus said, the reason why we have divorce, the reason why Ronald Reagan and uh, pol- politicians have given us no-fault divorce is because our hearts are hard. He said, because of your hard-heartedness. And what we need to pray for today is that the Lord will replace our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And so I just encourage you, man, I'll, I'll put some links in here. Even if you can't find a retreat to go to, 
from Life Giving Wounds. They've got some great book resources on their website. They've got a great newsletter you can sign up for where they, they blog and they have some great content. And so I encourage you to sign up for that and just kind of stay in touch, stay tuned with things they've got going on, uh, the resources they recommend, and uh, and really pray about it. Think of where you're at. Think of what you know is is causing you pain, what might be holding you back in your vocation. Um, and I just encourage you to go out and get the healing and the the therapy and the treatment and the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy and all that that you need so that you can be a fully functional human adult because that's what God wants for you. That's what good parents would want for you. And that's what I want for you. Um, and everybody who loves you wants for you. So yeah, I just want to encourage you guys with all of that. Hopefully this was helpful in in your own journey. And I hope that you, if you enjoyed this, I hope you'll share it with somebody who you know who has been through um, divorce, their parents are divorced, um, and encourage them and maybe share it with even some of the parents uh, who've gotten divorced so that they can kind of understand the impacts of it. And again, this isn't to judge or condemn everybody that gotten divorced, but it's, I think it's about time. And I think that's kind of the approach of life giving wounds. It's about time that somebody starts to defend the kids. Cause so often it's about tiptoeing around the feelings of the parents who got divorced. It's about time somebody stepped up and advocated for the kids to get the healing that they need and, and be a little bit less worried about hurting feelings of adults who have chosen this path, who have chosen divorce. Like let's, let's stop, let's stop, you know, not that we can't still be, careful and, and tactful and, and kind and compassionate. But to me, they're not the primary primary uh, parties here that we should care for or be responsible for. So um, I think it's, it's about time that somebody steps up and starts, starts talking about this for the kids. So uh, I want to do another episode on this with, with some of the leaders from the retreat. So hopefully I'll be able to coordinate that. Um, but you guys are great. Continue to fight hard to be your best. Know that God loves you. Um, and uh, never give up the hope that you can be healed and um, your wounds can be transformed. God bless you.